All right, this morning, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles uh, to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. We've been taking a look at uh, the, these these minor prophets. And again, you know, the purpose isn't to go through and identify every single element of doctrinal principles in each one of them. Uh, each one of the books in itself to go through and study and uh, see all of the things that the Lord is doing in regards to uh, um, the the nation of Israel, the prophecies, uh, the nations surrounding Israel that are going to be involved. Uh, there's things that are seen from a historical nature, and there are things that are seen uh, also in a prophetic nature. There's a lot of stuff that has got that, that is said in in the the the, uh, the minor prophets that have not been it has not been fulfilled yet. It's just not uh, um, uh, taken place yet. There's some things that look like it might have, but it's it's not that case. You know, it talks about at one point in time, you know, Jerusalem being heaps and ruins and stuff like that. And while at one point it kind of was, it you know, it's it's not now. It's a thriving, vibrant sea. Um, there's there's all sorts of uh, uh, other prophecies about uh, things millennial related, as far as. Uh, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. We're going to see a few of those here in the book of Micah um, that have not taken place. You, you, I was just talking with uh, Mike Griffey about that. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that's mentioned in those uh, uh, those hymns uh, about you know time of year, Christmas that we talk about, and people are like, well, I don't want to sing about them because you know it's it's thinking about something that hasn't happened yet. They're, they're millennial reigning oriented. Related to to that uh, kingdom of heaven, and that hasn't happened yet. But I still like to sing about it. I still like to read about it. And why is that? Because I want it. Amen. I don't know about you, but I think we need to change the government. That's right. I think Jesus Christ needs to be ruling and reigning. Because we've all seen what man does, and mm, it's not good. So I mean, uh, w- wouldn't it be glad that you know? You have, uh, you have Jesus Christ who rules and reigns and, well, he takes care of Putin. Like, oh yeah, are you going to do that? Takes care of, of, of an uprising in Iran. Okay. He takes care of that. Wouldn't it be great to see those things happen? And the Lord's going to do that. Lord's going to handle that and, and praise the Lord for it. Um, I, I, I look forward to those things. I don't mind singing about them. I like singing about them. Gives me great comfort knowing that God's going to fulfill his promise. And I want to mention that this is a lot of what the book of Micah is about. The book of Micah, when we look at it, the, the, the main theme, and if you will, you know, kind of a, a title, if you want to, of this, this message is God's promises are true. God's promises are true. There's promises that are found here in this, in, in this, uh, this book that, that, uh, um, some of them have been fulfilled. Some of them have not. And it takes a great deal of, of uh, uh, if you will, gives a great deal of relief and comfort to those that are seeing some things happen in this world and knowing the things that are going to happen just to know that God is still going to do what God's going to do, regardless of whatever sins are out there, that God is going to still be faithful and true to his promises. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again, Lord, for the book of Micah, and I just pray your Holy Spirit would be with us and speak to us this morning, that, Lord, our hearts would be ready to receive. Our hearts would be desirous to know more about you, and know more about what you've done and who you are, and, and Lord, to have that real, true relationship, not just some sort of intellectual ascent, but Lord, to have a spiritual connection with you. And we know that that's only possible because of what you've done on the cross for us. Shedding of your blood, giving of your life, and then the power of the resurrection, Lord, to give us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, I thank you so much for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would have all of that in our mind as we go about learning about you today. Learning from you. Learning about what's important in this life and learning about how true and faithful you are. Thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And these things I ask and pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So we take a look at the book of Micah here, and if you you, you take a look at the first part, and again, we're not going to go through an in-depth study necessarily of everything that's here, but I want us to see in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morashthite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah is unique in, in that he's looking at the overall picture of Israel. Because remember, the two kingdoms were there in Israel. It had been divided. Uh, right after Solomon with uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it split apart in rebellion. Ten tribes went one way and two tribes went the other way. One was known as the kingdom of Israel. One was known as the kingdom of Judah. And Judah had the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and was towards the south and involved Jerusalem. And the other one was uh, the kingdom uh, of Israel and it's had its capital in Samaria. And the very first thing that Jeroboam, that king did, was he said he didn't want anybody going down Jerusalem for fear that they, he might lose his kingdom. He goes and he sets up two golden calves and Dan and Beersheba to, for, for specifically the purpose of what? To go worship them as if they were worshiping God. And I want you to keep that in mind. That's idolatry. That's wicked. God didn't say, I want you to make an image of me and make it look like a cow and go worship it. That's that's not the case. There's only one image of God, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's clearly exemplified in Scripture. And over there in Colossians 1, we didn't get to that passage, but it talks about he is the image of the invisible God. That's the only image that's there. Not as four-footed beast as it talks about in Romans. Not as some sort of fowl or bird or fish or, or whatever it is. But not worshiping anything else save who our God is, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord. And that's what we need to understand. Here he is in his unique situation, and he's delivering a message to them. And with these three kings that he's dealing with, throughout these generations, he's continuing to tell this prophecy. He's continuing to say what's going to happen. And he gets into this message, and he he wants them, first and foremost, in verse 2, here. Here, all ye people. Not just Samaria. Not just Judah and Jerusalem, everyone. Here. Hearken, O earth. Now this isn't just the nation of Israel, but everyone. Hearken, O earth, and all that uh, therein is. Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And I love this, this start because he basically saying, God knows what you've all done. God knows what you've all done. Now, there's a terror behind that when we realize that God knows every thought, every thought in our heart, everything that we never said, everything that we've ever done, though, and everything that we have said that have passed through our lips, whether it was muttered or whether it was said in heart, whether it was vocalized and yelled from, you know, the the, the top of the highest peak, doesn't matter. God knows. But as we think about this, and he begins to address the nation of Israel, as we jump down to verse 5 here, he says, for the transgression of Jacob is all this. Now remember, Jacob is a reference to Israel. And he says, for the transgression of Jacob is all this, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? He's like, so what's your problem here? What's the issue? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And he points out two things. He says, you got a problem. You got a problem in both camps. You got a problem in both kingdoms. You got Samaria who is obsessed with idols. Idols made of their own hands. As Jeremiah 10 talks about, you know, the the individual that goes down, chops down a tree, brings it back, carves it up, plates it with gold and silver, and puts it there, and they worship that. Whether it's a calf, whether it's the image of man, whatever it is, it's something that is worshipped. We see that. 
That's Samaria. But then he points out, here's the issue. Jerusalem. What's the problem with you, Judah? Your pride. You've taken Jerusalem and you've made it the high place. You've made it the pride of Jerusalem. You've made it all about you. And we see that as we continue to go through the book of Micah, we see how they've just, in their, their, their desire for the wicked things, go straight to idolatry and go straight to just doing things that are just, they're just solely pride-based sins in defiance of God. Take a look at verse 7, where he says here, he says, And all the graven image thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols therefore will I lay desolate. For she gathered of it the hire of a harlot, and they shall return for the hire of a harlot. He says you got two different things going on here. You've got the one where you've got all of these idols and we're going to beat them all down. And you've got these individuals that, that kind of propose themselves as leaders of, of, of Israel, leaders in Jerusalem, and, you know, priests and Levites. And what have they done? They've hired themselves out for profit and for gain. As Paul says, thinking that, that, uh, um, that gain is godliness thinking that they're fulfilling the things of God, doing the things of God, what they want, but all they're in it is for is for the filthy lucre, for the money, the love of money. We see that throughout this, this passage. And what we see in this process with this idolatry and pride that begins to build in chapter 2 and in verse 1, it says, Woe unto them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds when the morning is light. They practice it. Because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields, and they take them by violence, and houses, and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. We see exactly what they're doing. Here they are, they're saying, no, that's mine. I'm going to take it. Yeah, that's a prideful sin. To walk in. We've all seen that with a child. A child's sitting there playing, and they're playing with a toy. Another child walks up, looks at it, grabs the toy away, mine. And the other child's like, no, it's mine. And then, you know, that. that. Let's just face it. We do that as adults, too. Driving down the road. You got your spot in your lane. Somebody cuts you off. They say, mine. Get out of my way. Right? That's how we respond. And we get to this mentality that, that, that again, because it's in the power of our hands, you know, we, we can do these things. What do we do? We just sit there and we work evil and we work evil and we work evil and we work evil. And God says, here's the problem. You've had this idolatrous heart. You've got this pride-filled heart. It leads to these things where you're just going. And now, now not only are you just wanting to, to do things for yourself, but now you're going through the process of hurting other people to get it. God doesn't want that. God's never desired that. Didn't he warn Cain? What did Cain want? Cain wanted to be respected by God. He wanted respect of the sacrifice. And God wouldn't respect the sacrifice because it wasn't what God asked for. God warned Cain and said, sin lies at the door. And what happened? That sin of bitterness... All he could do is just look at Cain, and all he did, or all, all Cain could do is just look at Abel and just hate him. Everything he stood for, everything that he did, because Cain was so unwilling to simply do what God asked. The end result is he takes Cain. Uh, Cain takes Abel's life. Abel dies. Abel's injured. Abel's hurt. Some harm has come upon him. And in the same fashion, now the nation of Israel is doing the same. I want this, so I'm going to take it. Ahab wanted a vineyard. Jezebel made sure it was taken by violence. People going and taking these things. Taking the things that belong to God taking the heritages that belonged, that were given 
to tribes and given to people and taking it and stealing it. And the end result that we see here is we see that sin begets sin. One sin that is allowed to come in, it begins to breed more and more and more and more and more. It spreads faster than any disease known to mankind. Sin introduced into a, a system will kill it immediately. It destroys things. Now, what did it begin to, to, to cause? And this is what happens. And I wanted you to see this progression. And here we are dealing with idolatry and pride, and it now moves into their oppressing people and just constantly thinking of wickedness, as, as we saw even with the, the, the world did over in Genesis chapter 6. But listen, look at what happens here in verse 6. Here, here they are, and he's saying, look, well, I send you all these prophets to tell you to stop and tell you to get, get right and to tell you to turn, do all these things. And, and what is it? what do they, they say? In verse 6, they're telling the prophets, prophesy ye not, say they them to, uh, say to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them, they that shall not take shame. Their pride said, I'm not going to be ashamed for what I've done. You go tell someone else. They told that to Amos. They said, the high priest comes to Amos and says, you shouldn't be saying these things here. You go, you don't go telling us here in Samaria about what we're doing wrong. You go down to Judah and tell them what they're doing wrong. Don't prophesy here. Don't prophesy here. Don't mention the name of God. Don't mention Jesus Christ. Don't talk about the Bible. Don't, don't, don't say that in a school. Don't say that in government. Don't say that in the workplace. Don't say it. You do it in your own privacy of your own home. Your own worship centers. But we'll let sin be proclaimed from everywhere. Don't prophesy. Don't prophesy. Micah was subject to that. He was subject to being told, not here, man. We don't want to hear it. Go tell someone else. And God said, fine. Then they, they won't prophesy to him. And the reason is, is because they will not realize the shame of what they've done. How much it has offended God and how much it has caused hurt. They're not willing to be ashamed of it. There's a problem with somebody that is not willing to be ashamed of a sin. There's a problem of heart. And it's because they've got idols and it's because they've got pride. Those things have been built up in their heart. And there will come a time where God says, okay, this is what you want to do. I'll be here if you want it. Take a look at what happens here in verse 11. In verse 11 of chapter 2 of the book of Micah, it says, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of the of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. You ever read that verse and think about what is he talking about? He's saying the drunk on the corner that's babbling in his drunkenness is their prophet. You ever hear a drunk babble? You ever hear what they say? Number one, if you can understand a word they say, it doesn't make sense. They're saying all sorts of things. They're saying this. They're saying that. And you're like, what are you even talking about? And they, they don't, they, they just, you're like, I have no idea. And they're saying, oh, that person's my prophet. They're willing to listen to another spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. They're rather listening to the spirits of drink than they are listening to God. And God said, that's what you want to listen to? I'll give you drunks for prophets. I'll give you people that are, are so inebriated that they don't make any sense. And those will be your prophets. We see that in the world today. 
We see that, you know, people going out there and saying things about this and saying things about that. And you just look at them and go, are you, are you for real? Are you, is that really your direction and your path? This is a choice you made? You begin to ask those questions because they're obviously far, so far gone from God. Because again, what they're worshiping. They're worshiping themselves and they're worshiping anything else but God. And that creates a problem. This is what the nation of Israel's done. Take a look at chapter 3, and, and again, in verse 11, it says, as it leads to them listening to this other spirit, it begins to develop these other problems. It says, the heads uh, uh, thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. You know what they're doing? They're taking the promise of God and they are disparaging it. They're saying, oh, nothing's going to happen to us. We're the children of God. And by the way, as everybody leaves today from the service, everybody's got to give me a hundred bucks for just being up here. For listening to the sound of my voice. Do not do that. Don't. Okay? Not for hire. Can't be bought with money. That's what a prophet is. These prophets, what do they do? These priests, the judges, everybody that's in charge, they're all oriented about themselves. Survival of the fittest. They will get what's theirs. As long as they're okay, it doesn't matter what happens to anyone else. This is the mentality, what happens when a person is willing to listen to another spirit because they are unwilling to hear what God has to say because they are so far into the begetting and, you know, spreading of sin in their life. And you know what happens? Take a look at what happens in chapter 3 in verse uh, 5 through 7. Something that is very horrible. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make thy people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore night shall be unto you, and ye shall not have a vision. And it shall be dark unto you, and ye shall not divine. The sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded, yea, They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. He says, you don't want to listen to me anymore? I'm going to turn off the channel. For 400 years, God did not talk to Israel. They didn't hear. It was dark. They, 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 they sat there and nothing happened until on one night some angels showed up and proclaimed the birth of the Savior. Till, till, till Mary and Joseph had a visitation and were told of what was going to happen. We look at all of that and we begin to see how they went through that darkness, but the Lord still during that time, was committed to the promises. Committed to what he told Israel. I will make you a great nation. The promise and covenant that he had with Abraham. And we see here, he's just saying, okay, now here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to talk. You're going to call, I'm not going to answer. You ever get ghosted by people? On the phone. I'm guilty of doing that. I'll be in the middle of something and, and, and the phone rings and I'm like, I can't talk right now. There's no answer. Oh, obviously it's because I'm in the middle of doing something and I try to get back to it as soon as I can. But I'll, I'll say this. Can you imagine they just don't answer the phone because they just don't want to talk to you? Well, there's people that are like that. But understand this, 
Can you imagine the point in time where Israel has just done so much that God says, I'm done talking to you. And they call and he goes, not answering it. Why? Because they were regarding iniquity in their heart. They were regarding iniquity in their heart. They had a complete lack of judgment. Take a look at the first part of chapter 3. And he says, and I said, here I pray you, O heads of Jacob and ye princes uh, of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? Here he, is, he's asking, he has a lot of questions in the book of Micah. And one of them, he's like, look, look, is this not your responsibility? Is it not your responsibility to know how to judge people correctly? We are. We, we People, we're supposed to know. Christians are supposed to know how to judge people correctly. And there's a whole process behind it. And many people just quote, you know, Matthew, judge not let you be judged without understanding the context of what happens afterwards where he starts talking about how to judge. So he's got a point behind it about what he's saying. But here he's saying, is it not for you to know judgment? This is something you're supposed to do? It's like what he told Nicodemus. You're one of the rulers and leaders, religious leaders of, of the nation of Israel, and you don't know these things? And the same thing is true here. But look at what, what the reason why that they can't make the right judgment calls. I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why people make bad decisions. Verse 2, who uh, hate the good. They hate the good. Meaning they'd rather choose sin than righteousness. They'd rather choose the world than God. Who hate the good and love the evil. Who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot. as for the flesh within the cauldron. And this is not what we're having for potluck. Okay? <laughs> Just clarify. <clears throat> I was reading that and I'm like, oh man, it's potluck service. Yeah. <clears throat> Think about this. You know what he's talking about? These people and their love for the things that are sinful consume themselves and consume the others around them. And this is what has, con- has happened to the nation of Israel. If you will, he, he uses it as self-harm and cannibalism. Something that we would look at and go, ew, gross. But he says, that's what you're doing, Israel. Your love for sin has brought you to this. Your love for sin has brought you to this. They begin persecuting people. They begin oppressing people. In verse 9 of, of chapter 3, he says, Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They just make bad judgment calls. Why? Because they're in it for the money. They're selfish. They're prideful. They're humanistic. It's all about them. It's all about what they want and what they get. There's nothing about God. And there's nothing about anyone else. It's a selfish mentality. However, there's one thing that just remains true through all of this. In Numbers chapter 23 and in verse 19, Numbers 23, 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie. And God has never lied. And that means that the promises of God are still true. And here he is talking with Israel saying, look, I got to judge you. You, you, We've got to deal with this sin. We've got to do all of this. But right there in the middle of the book, in chapter 4 of Micah, God begins to tell them, but I'm still going to keep my promise. I I, I like chapter 4 because look at the very first word of verse 1 of chapter 4. But you're doing all this stuff. You're horrible. You're wicked. You're doing these things because you, 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 you're so far gone. 
You got to get this sin addressed. I'm begging you to listen to me. You're not going to listen, so I'm not going to talk to you. But here, but here's what I'm going to do. But here's the promise that I gave your fathers. But here's the promise I gave Abraham. But here's the promise, while you're being unfaithful, I'm going to still be faithful to what I said I would do. And praise the Lord for that. And he says it right there in verse uh, verse 1, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. That promise has not taken place yet. This is what I was talking about. This is what many of our hymns, hymns in our hymnals talk about. That's when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And he says there, he says, all the people shall flow to it. They're going to gravitate towards God. Gravitate towards Christ. Everything is going to come from them. Everything, all the judgment, all the government, all of the decisions, everything about it, God is going to set the standard. God has already set the standard, but he's going to rule and reign here on earth. And he's talking about that the Lord shall be established. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. And he says, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will speak of it in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How many nations do we see today saying, hey, I want to go back to the Bible to get this government stuff straight. I think that if if one day Congress or somebody in the White House said that, I think I would probably pass out. If they if they just got on TV and didn't care what CNN or Fox News said and got on there and said, you know what, we need to go to the house of the Lord to get things straight. So from here on out, we're going to put some churches in charge of deciding things about this country. <gasps> separation of church and state, separation of church and state, establishment clause. Don't have no idea what that even means. But they would freak out about it. But you realize he's saying there's going to be a good time where nations are going to say, I want to go. I want to go. Let's go. Right now, spontaneous vacation to go see Christ. Wow. In verse 3, it says, And he shall judge among uh, many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn a war anymore. Look, a lot of people want that. A lot of people want to try to get that way. But there's a problem with it. That you're leaving out the first part of the verse, which is, and it's necessary for Jesus to be there. You want to stop war? You want to stop gang violence? You want to stop shootings in the streets and, and, and wherever else they may happen? You want to stop those things? Then we need a lot more Jesus. We need a lot more God. We need a lot more Bible. We need a lot more of his Holy Spirit working. It's not going to happen until that happens. That will change. That will change the world. In verse 4, it says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none uh, shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all the people will walk everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I want you to see something. Here he is talking about what the Lord's going to do for Israel. What the Lord's going to do because of those that choose to walk according to what the Lord says. He's going to fulfill the promises. And he says in verse 6, In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth. I will gather her that is driven out. I will take her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant and her that was cast far off, uh, far off a strong nation and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. 
This is the prophecy. He says, I'm going to restore Israel. I'm going to heal them. They've been broken for a long time. They've been walking around limp. And he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. And it involves a nation that is turning themselves to God, which is what he's pleading throughout this book. Just hear, just listen. Hear, listen, set aside the sin, set aside the idolatry, set aside the pride. And it comes to a point in time, you know, they're going to, as we see in verse or chapter 5, and I'd love to get into all of it, but in chapter 5, in verse 5, he starts talking about the Assyrian, the Assyrian, a reference to the Antichrist, a reference to his kingdom, and that they would rather choose that as we've seen in the other minor prophets, they'd rather choose that than choose God. They'd rather choose oppression than to be free. They'd rather choose bondage than liberty. But if you look at chapter 5 and verse 2, I love this. They're tucked away in the promises of God. Verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings have been forth from old, from everlasting. Now, who is that talking about? That's Jesus Christ. It's, it's the youth group answer. Jesus. That's who it is. It's him. And he just called Jesus what? God. It says he's been from everlasting. What does that mean? He's been around as long as God's been around. Why? Because he is God. And we see here very clearly a picture of what's going to happen. But he says, that little town of Bethlehem, there's a promise. There's a promise. And I want to point one thing out here. You know, throughout this, we see that, that, that there's the desire that the Lord has uh, for the nation of Israel. There's a desire to restore and resolve the issues. There's the promise that he makes in the, in the last chapter, in the last part. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to show something. I want to point something out. If somebody was to ask you, where was Jesus Christ born? We'd all say what? Bethlehem. Right. We know it. Old little town of Bethlehem, right? Even the world kind of knows it with the hymns and the songs that are sung. The things that are, that are even mentioned out there. They, they, they know all of that. You realize the Pharisees knew that too. Go over to John chapter 7. Keep replacing Micah so you don't lose it because it's a hard book to find again. But <laughs> go over to John chapter 7. I want you to see this. They're debating about Jesus Christ. They're having some issues with the things he said. But again, as we established in John chapter 3, they knew he would come from God because no man can do the things that he was doing except he be of God. But what do we find here in John chapter 7 in, in, in verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 37? It says, in the last day, the great, uh, that great feast, uh, great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the, the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Same thing that he just told the woman at the well at Samaria. And this is what happens. All of a sudden, you know, these people hear this. And they say in verse 40, oh, of the truth, he is a prophet. Others, in verse 41, saying this is the Christ. But in verse 41, I want you to notice, and it says, but some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh out of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. So right there in chapter 7, in verse 42, they acknowledge the fact that they know the scriptures. But here's the problem. Where did they think Jesus Christ was born? Galilee. Why? 
Because that's where he had lived. He was called Jesus of Nazareth because he, not because he was born in Nazareth, because that's where he grew up. And they're saying, no, no, as they've also, as it was said, nothing good can come out of Galilee. It's a dump. You realize that they assumed that Jesus Christ was born in Galilee. No one ever asked him. No one went up to him and said, were you born in Galilee? His answer would have been, no, I was born in Bethlehem. Oh. I want to point out one of the biggest issues in the book of Micah and in the book of John that we see here is, you know what? The people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers, the priests, they knew what the scripture said, but they never wanted to seek to know who Christ is. You know, people always talk about wise men still seek him, right? These people never saw him. They made assumptions. They made assumptions. They sat there and they said in their hearts, what, what harm can come of us? Isn't the Lord on our side? As they continue in sin. They didn't know the Lord. They knew some of the promises. But I'll tell you this. Knowing God and knowing the Lord and knowing Christ isn't an intellectual thing. You know, it's not really logical to sit down sometimes and realize that we have to believe things simply because God said it. There's some things that we can't even begin to try to explain in our finite little human forms. But I believe it. Why? Because God said it. It's called faith. And they never had any of that. They had theology, but they had no application. You know what it is? They never had any love for God. They didn't want to know Him. They only knew what they wanted to know. Just enough to get by and try to hang on to the coattail of a promise. I'll tell you this today, salvation isn't like that. Salvation isn't about hanging on to a coattail of a promise. Salvation isn't about clinging to what you think you know about God. Salvation is very simple. God sent himself, his son, in the flesh here on earth to be born So that he might die on a cross and shed his blood for my sin, for your sins, for the sins of the world. To raise again three days later. To conquer sin. To conquer death. To spoil principalities and powers. That we may have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he is there in heaven. And he is in me, and I am in him as a believer. Look, salvation is simple. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. The mouth confession is made, and in the heart you believe. It says in verse 9 of Romans chapter 10. That's salvation. It's simple. Don't have to work for it. Don't have to do anything. No money is ever going to be able to buy it. But the Lord provided it. And there's the promise that we find over there in Micah chapter 4. He promises them a king. 
But before Jesus Christ is king, he came as a savior. Israel will never get their sins forgiven without the savior. Without the shedding of blood. Without the payment upon the cross. There is no redemption. There is no purchase price. And it cost him the purchase price of his precious blood to cover my sins. So I want to know more about God. I want to know more about Jesus. Key principle that we see in the book is that God's going to keep his promises. He promised to send a king, and he did. He's promised to send a savior, and he has. He's promised to save those that call upon him, and he continues to do so today. Turn back over there to the book of Micah. In the book of Micah. And here he is, talking to him, and he says, look, here's, here's the nature of this. You're doing all this stuff, and what are you doing it for? In verse 6 of Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, he says, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. He said, that's it. He says, this is what I want. I want mankind walking with me. But I want them to do what is right, and I want them to be humble. That's all the Lord has wanted. And he makes it very clear there. And he says, and above this, I want you to love mercy. I want you to exhibit that in your life. The principles and the traits that God's saying, and he's saying, look, you do all these sacrifices and you do what the, the, the wicked do and they're offering their children. And he's like, I don't want any of those things. All of it, he says in verse 3, he says, I'm wearied. I just want you to do what's right. I just want you to walk with me. I just want you to walk with me. And there's Jesus Christ in John chapter 7, walking and talking with them. And they still don't know it's God. That's an amazing thing to think about. But God said, I'm still going to keep my promises. In chapter 7, we're going to read these last for three verses and we'll be done. In verse 18, it says, Who is a God like Undidi. All the gods that are out there in the world that people worship, who, who who's like this one? Who's like Jesus Christ? Who's like the Lord? Who compares? I've done comparative religious studies, and I'll tell you this, none of them. None of them. And yeah, you know what? I am biased. Why? Because I'm trusted the Lord as my Savior. Because the other ones weren't offering any salvation from sin. But Jesus Christ was. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, praise God for that, because he delighteth in mercy. Exactly what he wants us to do. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And will cast out all their sins into the depth of the sea. And will perform the truth to Jacob. And the mercy to Abraham. Which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. He says, look, Israel, you sinned. I get it. I'm sending a savior. We'll get it corrected. And we'll get to where 
I promised we would be. Praise God we have God like that. Praise God that we have a Lord that saved us, that gave us salvation. Praise God that we have one that cares about us. Praise God we have a Redeemer that said he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's knowing God. Do we know him today? If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to just come forward right now and just say, I want to know. We're going to sing a hymn in just a few minutes. I want you to just come. Don't wait. Don't delay. Now's the time to do it. If you're here today and maybe you think you know about who Jesus is, maybe you made a lot of assumptions, maybe you're trusting Christ as your Savior, but you still don't have that walk with Him, maybe it's time we humbled ourselves, we did what is right, and we love that mercy that the Lord continues to show to us, and we walk with our God. Maybe the time is today to commit to that. Would you do that today? Let's stand for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. And I thank you again, Lord, for this book of Micah and what it teaches us. And Lord, while it's a very simple message to see what you have there, and there's so much more that is in depth and in detail in that book, Lord, I just thank you for the simplicity of it. We need a Savior. That you provided one as you promised. And Lord, your promises are true. You hold true to the promises of Jacob and Abraham. And Lord, you'll hold true to the promises of salvation to us. And I thank you for it. Pray, Lord, that you continue to meet with us and speak to our hearts as we sing these hymns in praise and glory to you. It would be pleasing to your ears as we sing, Lord, with our hearts in your spirit. And I ask and pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.